God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. It says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, isn't that a participation in the blood? The bread that we break, isn't that a partici- participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one body, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and its fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Well, this last week I went out for a jog. And as I was jogging, I saw Christmas lights in a house and a Christmas tree. And I thought, what? You could have at least waited for Halloween or Reformation Day as your celebration might go. And then Thanksgiving. Well, we already have the Christmas lights out. And, you know, we'll joke, when is the right time? Oh, I can't believe that you haven't celebrated this holiday or whatever. And we wonder, when should we start getting out Christmas decorations? But for some quick Christians, the question is really easy. You should never set them out. They would say you should never celebrate Christmas because, go from Genesis to Revelation, where does it say to do this? As well, if you start looking into some of the ways we celebrate Christmas, they maybe have pagan roots and are we worshiping pagan religions? You may think, well, this is really obscure, but the church I grew up in, when we first moved there, many people thought this way. The pilgrims of Pilgrim Plantation, the people of the first Thanksgiving, made it illegal to celebrate Christmas. You must work on Christmas Day. The nation of Scotland outlawed Christmas in the 1500s because they're Protestants. We don't worship the Mass, Christmas, and it wasn't legal until 1950s. This was not that long ago. Again, some of you are thinking, this man is crazy. What is he talking about? It's just a tree. I'm not worshiping Athena or whoever this was originally given to. What's the big deal? 
And issues like this are not new. In fact, it's what we've been studying in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. It's how do we relate to issues where there's freedom of conscience, but one person feels really strongly that's wrong, and the other person doesn't. What do we do? What do we do when you say, I can go to a movie, it's no big deal, and your other Christian says, no, we shouldn't go to movies, or we shouldn't drink alcohol. How do we relate and love one another, or as was read earlier, welcome one another, as Romans 15 said. And the church of Corinth has this all mixed up. If you read through the letter, you'll find in chapter 5 and 6 that they're saying, we're free in Christ. We can do whatever, so we're going to allow a man to have an immoral relationship with his stepmom. We're free in Christ. Or in chapter 6, they'll be arguing, we can go to prostitutes. We're free in Christ. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Those are first level issues. You're not free to sin. But then in chapter 7, an issue where you're free, spousal intimacy, they're saying, no, a Christian is holy. They wouldn't do that. And they're making laws where we should have freedoms. They've got this whole thing all mixed up. And so Paul is writing, trying to help them know, when am I free in Christ? And when am I under a law? What does this look like? And so now in these verses, we wrap up Paul's teachings in began that began in chapter 8, verse 1. And here he basically says three things. If you like to have an outline, you like to follow along, take notes, we're going to first see in verses 14 through 22 that Christ did not free us to pursue sin. Christ did not free us to pursue sin. Second, in verses 23 through 30, Christ did not free us to pursue selfish aims. 23 through 30, Christ did not free us to pursue selfish aims. And then, positively, he tells us, chapter 10, verse 31 to 11, 1, you are free to pursue God and to pursue people. That is what you've been freed to do. But notice how Paul begins the section, verse 14, therefore, my beloved. You know, these are people who are living these lives of sin. They're even challenging whether he should be an apostle. And he doesn't say, look, you scoundrels. Hey, you scumbags. I'm an apostle. You better look. He says, my beloved. He's emulating what he calls Timothy to, and that is that we correct our opponents with gentleness and love. And he's calling his beloved to flee from idolatry. Really, this is the summation of what he's been saying from chapter 9, 24 to here. And that is that they and we need to be warned that we don't rest on the great things we've experienced or had in the past to think, well, I'll never sin that way again. Oh yeah, I used to struggle with that. That's done. I, I've experienced some great things. He goes, oh really? Well, let's consider the nation of Israel. And if you look through 10 verses 1 through 12, he lays this out. Who are the people who went through the Red Sea? That's pretty miraculous. Who are the people who then went into a desert and were given food and water every day in a desert. That's a pretty amazing experience with God. Who had a cloud and a pillar of fire that said, time to get up, let's go. You can look, there it is. Oh, cloud's moving, God's telling us to move. I mean, if you've ever wanted to know what God's telling you to do, it's a cloud for Israel. So they had God's presence, they had God's protection, they had God's provision every day. So these people will never sin. No, these people, and then he lays out all the things they do that lead to their destruction. 
They made a golden calf. They indulged in sexual immorality. They tempted Christ. They grumbled. And so what do they need and we need to do? Take care. If you think you stand, that you don't fall. Don't today rest on your past. Oh, I'm not doing that. I'm serving the Lord today. I'll never fall again. I'm perfect. I'm good. He says, no. Today, be careful. Be on your guard. And then in this, he gives them a wonderful encouragement. He says, but God is faithful. Your standing is not going to be because you're such a great Christian. God's faithful. He's going to provide a way of escape so that you can endure any of this. But then he doesn't say, so kick back, be passive, because God's going to be faithful. He then says, flee from idolatry. Flee from this so you don't go into sinning. Now, this is not abstract fleeing from idolatry. If you remember the issue we've been discussing from chapter 8, that is meat sacrificed to idols. And that the meat that they could buy in the markets first went through the pagan temple. Now, in chapter 8, Paul said, they're free to eat, eat, eat that meat if they buy it from the marketplace. And he'll say that again in verse 25 in this chapter because God created everything. However, the strong, as Paul calls them, are sinning against their brothers in Christ by how they're eating the meat and when they're eating the meat. However, it appears that they're not only doing that, they're going farther than that and they're actually participating in the pagan worship services. You can almost hear their thoughts. Well, look, we're free in Christ and we know, as Paul said in chapter 8, they're not even real. So, this doesn't even matter. This is all fake, so I, I'm going to enjoy the meat. It's actually a little better, fresher in the pagan worship service, so let's go. It's not real anyways. And yet Paul then says, look, listen to what I'm uh, going to say here. Verses 15 on, he doesn't say, hey, look, I'm an apostle. Listen. He says, I'm going to make an argument. And listen to my argument. You're sensible people. And hear what I'm saying. And then he gives this argument. And hopefully these Corinthians are more sensible than me because I read it a lot and I'm still going, eh, not sure what all those details mean. But the big picture is clear. Paul's going to draw a connection to the Lord's Supper. He's going to draw a connection to Old Testament sacrificial system. And he's going to draw a connection to pagan worship services and say, look, in each one of those, there's a participation. There's a fellowship with the one in whom you're worshiping. And you can't then go do that with Christ. So let's look a little bit more in detail here. First, in verses 16 through 17, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, look, in the Lord's Supper, Christ is personally with us. Well, what does that mean? Well, consider back chapter 6. What did Paul, what it was one of his big warnings about not going to prostitutes? Well, he says, chapter 6, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? He's saying, look, God dwells in us by faith in his spirit. And in a special way, not getting mystical here or anything like that, but in a special way, he is with us when we are worshiping. He's with us when we take the Lord's Supper. And when, as we gather for worship, we sang earlier, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Well, he's already in our midst, but in a special way. 
when we gather. And so when we gather, Christ is there. So then, are we going to take that same gathering where they're worshiping idols, he's saying? Why would we do that? That's taking Christ to demonic worship. In like ways, in verse 18, he talks about Jewish sacrifices. And he goes and he says, well, look, let's be clear. I'm not saying these are real gods. They're not real, but rather they're empowered by demons. When we looked at this in chapter 8, we noted then, consider back when Moses, Aaron, they did miraculous wonders and signs in Egypt. The first few they did, the Egyptian sorcerers did as well. Well, how? Well, because God has allowed demonic forces to empower some of these things so they appear to be real. And sadly, people think they are real. The idols are real, but they in themselves are not. They're only empowered by demonic forces, Paul is telling us. And so to go there, Paul's saying, to go to this pagan worship service is to sin. That's why he says in verse 21, you are not able to drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Now notice Paul is not just making a moral argument. You shouldn't. Think what he's saying is you it is impossible. Think back to when you were in school and you'd raise your hand and you'd say to the teacher, can I go to the restroom? And they would say, I don't know. Can you? What were they trying to say? Can is ability. Can you? I don't know. May is permission. Paul is not saying you shouldn't. He is saying you cannot. It is impossible to be a part of both. Currently, hopefully it stays this way, in the U.S., you can only be married to one person. You cannot, in the U.S., be married to two people. Now, you can live like you are, and you can try to act that way, but in the United States, you cannot legally be married to two separate people. Paul is saying, you cannot be united to Christ and also united to demons. It is impossible. You can try, but you're either with God or you are against God. You cannot try and ride the fence. It is impossible. And Paul kind of is a little bit sarcastic because they think they're strong in the Lord. And he says in verse 22, are you so strong that you're going to make God jealous? You know, the idea here is covenant commitment. It's like marriage. Look, you can't be with more than one spouse, and you can't be with more than one God. Are you going to try and provoke God to jealousy? And, hey, God, I know you got, it's all about grace and freedom, so I'm just going to go worship idols. It doesn't matter. Saying, no. God is jealous, like a spouse should be for love. Now, one man, man helpfully clarifies this. He says, God's jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, it is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. Like a mother's jealous protection of her children, a father's jealous guarding of his home, a spouse's jealous guarding of their spouse's love. You know, we often hear jealousy in a negative term, but God's jealousy is a good thing that secures us to him. And so Paul is strongly warning, you can't mix the worship of God with the worship of demons. God did not free you, he's saying, so then you can go right back to sin. And yet though that might seem obvious, consider this story from 2016. 
A major newspaper in England reported it says, in a history stretching back 1,400 years, York Minster, it's the name of a church there, has witnessed wars, plagues, revolutions, sieges, and fires. But perhaps nothing quite like this. Arguably England's most venerable church, it is renowned around the world for its daily cycle of prayer and choral worship. But in what will be seen as a striking departure from its Christian traditions, senior clergy of the Minster have quietly introduced a new form of spiritual enrichment altogether, Zen Buddhist meditation. How many will quickly dig, oh, but the Bible calls us to meditation? Yes, Psalm 1 praises meditation, but biblical meditation is filling your mind with God's truth, so you might know and reflect on God. Zen Buddhist meditation is the exact opposite. It's about emptying your mind so that you might become one with the God consciousness, a completely different meaning of God. And yet a church that has made it through 1,400 years, all types of things, is now allowing synchristic worship, meaning the mixing of religious practices. Or consider this announcement last year from one of the oldest or from the oldest independent christian seminary in the u.s today in chapel we confessed to plants together we held our grief joy regret hope and guilt sorrow and prayer offering to them again to plants the beings who sustain us but whose gifts we too often fail to honor what do you confess to the plants in your life that's them not me don't get confused well after they received much Pushback, much rebuke, they responded, they defended themselves with this. Our seminary is grounded in the Christian tradition. Well, that's good. And at the same time, com committed to interreligious engagement. Well, it is good to talk to other religions and hear what they have to say. But then they say, but our chapel is by design a place where people from all faiths Faith traditions, wondrous faith traditions, can express their beliefs. Given the incredible diversity of our community, that means worship looks different every day. Well, that is heresy. That is exactly what Paul is talking about here. You cannot say, well, we're, we're all just faith traditions. Well, no. Some say Jesus is not the Son of God. Some say you should confess your sins to plants. That's not the same thing. And Paul is clear, he did not free us to then sin in how we live and in how we worship. God is jealous for our undivided loyalty to him. And so we have to be very cautious. Yes, we should have friends that we listen to and we want to know what they believe so we can engage them. That is good, but it is wrong to then say things like, well... I'm just hearing how God has spoken in different ways. Well, no, God has spoken in one way through his son. And we need to listen to him. And so Paul is warning, look, yes, believers in Corinth, believers say, be flexible on third level issues. Conscience, whether you drink alcohol, where you send your kids to school. Yes, on those be free, but don't be free and flexible on first level issues, issues of how you and what you worship, on those you need to be inflexible. You need to be firm and you need to flee, he's saying, anything that is calling you to be flexible on those things. 
Okay, so then many people say, okay, we get it. All right, Paul, you're very clear. Everything that's not distinctly Christian is off limits. Nothing that doesn't have a Christian label, I'm not going to use. Because, well, no, that's not what I'm saying either. He's saying, rather, you have to say, is it worshiping these false idols? And we'll see next that Paul explains in verses 23 through 30 that you are free, and you even can buy meat at the meat market that went through the pagan temple, but you're not free to pursue it selfishly. This is the second point, verses 23 through 30. We're not freed in Christ to pursue selfish aims. And it begins in verse 23. All things are lawful. That seems like a phrase that the Corinthians often use. You know, in Christ, all things are lawful. Now, some phrases are really good, helpful shorthands that can help us understand something, and if used and applied correctly, are true. If they're saying, all things are lawful, Christ came and fulfilled the law, so we don't need to eat kosher food, we don't need to be circumcised, we don't need to observe the religious days commanded in the Old Testament, then Paul would say, yes, all things are lawful in that regard. But they're now applying this phrase to other things. You know, often this happens that a helpful phrase gets distorted from its original meaning and gets applied in harmful ways. If you've read C.S. Lewis's Narnia series, you may know that in the early books, the, one of the main figures, Aslan, is a lion, and they say of him, he's not a tame lion. And that's to convey the idea that though he is loving, though he's kind, he's not your buddy, he's not someone you should mess around with. He's not a tame lion. But then in a later book, enemies of Aslan distort this phrase, and they actually enslave people, and they do horrible things, and every time people are like, well, why are you doing this? And they say, well, you know, Aslan's not a tame lion. And this happens even today. God is love is a wonderful statement until you then say, well, God is love, so he's going to forgive me for whatever I do. It doesn't matter. Well, that's not what God is love means. Well, God is holy. Well, that's true. But if you're using that to justify setting up legalism, that's distorting what that phrase means. So Paul uses their phrase, all things are lawful, yes, but he qualifies it. Not all things are profitable. If you went trick-or-treating last night, it is legal to eat the whole bag of candy. Not all things are profitable. He goes on, he says again, all things are lawful. Verse 23, now verse 24, but not all things build up. And he's not just saying personally build up as a group. We see that because he says in verse 24, no one must seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. You know, God freed us for service, not for selfishness. You know, we often think of relationships, even certain relationships. Oh, that's a ball and chain. That's going to ruin my life. But freedom actually comes in thinking of and living for others. You know, we often think of the restrictions on us being outside unjust laws, oppressive parents, societal norms, whatever they may be. But the biggest threat to our freedom is inside us. The biggest threat to my joy is me and the sin in me that wants to ruin my life. And the way to be liberated is to be set free through Christ that you might enjoy life as it was really made. And thus Paul conveys, yes, you have freedoms, 
but not freedoms to pursue your selfish aims. Rather, that freedom is given so you might serve others. Use that freedom to help a believer, to be a witness for Christ, to build others up. And so Paul ties this in. Well, let's be specific. He basically says, let's go through two scenarios. First scenario, you go to the meat market. Can you buy the meat? Yes. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything that it contains. The fact that it happened to go through a pagan meat market does not mean you can't eat it. Eat the meat. Purchase it. No big deal. It's not, you're not going to the pagan worship service. Then he raises another scenario. But what if someone invites you over for a meal? Now notice he says an unbeliever, and Paul's kind of implying something here. Because unbelievers are not going to be making food in kosher ways. So Paul is subtly also saying, look, all of that's in the past. You don't need to worry if they use the right type of cooking instruments and all this. We're free in Christ. But if you choose to go and they offset meat before you, you don't need to go, ah, where'd this come from? Did you get this at Joe's? He's a Christian. He, he'd get the meat right. Or you did get this from Frank's. I don't know. Where, where did you get this? No, you don't need to ask any questions. Just eat what's put before you and enjoy it. However, if someone goes, whoa, whoa, did you know this came from Poseidon's? You can't eat that. He then says, you say, thank you very much. And you put your fork down and you won't eat. Why? Because you do not want to harm your friend, your brother, sister in Christ, for whom Christ died. Now what Paul's saying here can be very confusing, but I believe he's saying he allows his actions to be constrained by others, but not his conscience. And he goes into this. He's saying, no, I have liberty in my conscience. So I believe on Friday night, if he's with a friend who won't eat the meat, he won't. Not because his conscience has changed, but his actions because he loves that guy. But Saturday night, he's with his other friend who loves the meat and has no qualms. I think Paul would eat the meat with him. Now he's not being a hypocrite. He's trying to act in love with whoever he is with. And here, Paul is really giving us a very great example of how to calibrate our conscience. When we looked at chapter 8, we noted that our conscience is the good inner sense that God gives us that something is right or wrong. It's a wonderful instrument to help us live a life that pleases God. And you should normally, like a smoke detector, listen, oh wait, I should check what's going on. However, our consciences are fallible. We can become overly sensitive and say some things are sin that are not. Or we can become desensitized and say, yeah, that's not a sin, when it is. So we always have to calibrate it, get it back in tune with the standard, God's word. So imagine this issue. They've just got this letter, and now they need to go buy some meat. In this moment, they have to calibrate their conscience. Now Paul is very clear, Romans 14, 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. It is a sin to go against your conscience. However, I think there's this time where you're calibrating, where you're going to feel a little, ugh. you go to the meat market and you have to keep telling yourself, based on God's word here, based on Psalm 24, I can buy this meat. I can buy this meat. Now, hopefully over some time, you will then be able to go and you don't have to keep reminding yourself this. But if you can never get to that point, 
then you need to stop buying the meat because it is a sin to go against your conscience. So let's change the scenario. Maybe you were raised that it's a sin to drink caffeinated beverages. You can inform your conscience on God's word that that's not a sin. But it might take looking at God's word. Now, the point is you need to calibrate by God's word, not with, eh, I don't care. If you think it's a sin, don't drink caffeinated beverages. Calibrate it by God's word. And there may be some times where you're going, eh, I don't know. And you have to remind yourself of the earth is the Lord's and everything there is. Ah, caffeine. And enjoy it. And it may take time, but by God's word, get your conscience in calibration with the truth. And so Paul is giving, giving them these scenarios for how to live in love. And yet these ideas really cut against the grain of American thinking. You know, we often think the only question is, is this right or wrong for me? Nothing else matters. We even boldly say, you do you. Don't let anyone affect you. Be your own person. Now, of course, there are some elements of truth in that, and conforming is not necessarily the goal. Yet as followers of Christ, we can't say, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. For me personally, I need to consider what Sarah thinks. I need to consider what my children think. I need to consider what the church thinks, what my extended family. I'm not an island. It is not a sign of godliness to say, I don't care what anyone thinks. It's a sign of lack of love in your life. Now, I'm not saying become a pawn for everyone where you're always like, oh, what do they think? <laughs> but are we living a life that's considering others? Or are we just living for ourselves? Last year, missionary Rachel Clapin in Taiwan wrote an article entitled, Netflix is making it harder to be a missionary. And then she talked about how she left the U.S. and went to Taiwan, and it was really hard. Even going to the post office or going to get groceries would take like half a day and was just emotionally and mentally exhausted. So she would go back to her apartment, and what would she do? She'd get on Netflix. She'd video chat with family back in the U.S. She'd watch sports that were in the U.S. And yet she began to realize after a while she wasn't really developing relationships in Taiwan. And so she said for herself, I need to set limits on how much technology I engage in overseas. Now that could become a legalism that you may never use a smartphone if you're a missionary. You can never video chat with your family. Well, she wasn't saying that. She was realizing if I'm going to love the people that are here that I'm literally being sent on a mission for, I have to block some of that. Because that's sinful? No. Because she's free in Christ and she's considering how can she love those whom God has put in her life. We don't, and we shouldn't just think, is this wrong? We should ask, is this best for the gospel? Now one challenge to this sermon is that Paul has an assumption that many of us, many Americans don't have. And that is that church is not just an event you attend from whatever time to whatever time on Sunday morning. Church is not just a list of names on a sheet of paper or online spreadsheet. A church is a living organism in which you are a part of their life. If church is just an event and everyone goes and you're there kind of in a room for an hour or two and then you all go lead your own lives, 
then who cares what you're doing with what meat you eat? You're never going to see them while you're eating meat anyways. And yet if we're living lives that are intertwined because of the gospel and for God's glory, then these issues matter. Paul is basing all of this on the assumption that the church is not just attending an event, but that you interweave your life with the other people in this room or whatever church you're a part of. Now, of course, everything can go to the opposite extreme and we could become a cult. We should be so interwoven, we're going to rebuild the apartments and we're all going to live here together because we are going to love one another. Well, we're not a cult. You have your own lives and that's good. But it's neither extreme. It's not just you own your, have your, you own your lives or we live all together. There should be a mixing that you have to consider. Ooh, what are meals going to be like? Because so-and-so's coming over tonight. We need to consider how to love them when they come over. Mark Dever once told the story of a friend who had a real active ministry outside of the church, a parachurch ministry, and he would come to his church and he'd almost always show up during the first song and leave real quickly afterwards. And one day Mark was talking to him. He said, hey, would you ever consider you know, like joining the church and becoming more committed? And the man was like shocked and he goes... Why would I ever do that? That would really slow me down. And Mark said, well, did you ever consider that God would want that so you could speed the rest of the people up? You know, God didn't just make us for ourselves. He made us for others. And yeah, it might really slow you down to link arm in arm with some other Christians. But you know what? You are going so fast, you might pull them along farther in their walk with Christ. And really the answer to that question that Mark Dever asked, and really what Paul is getting at, is a fundamental question. Why are we here? Why did God put us in this universe? What's our purpose? Well, he answers that in verses 31 through 11.1. We were created, and then we were freed to pursue God and people. In verse 31, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. This is a wonderful verse. And yet, I want to pause because I think often we run this through our American individualistic mindset first. And many of the things I'm going to say next are wonderful truths, but it's not actually what Paul is saying first. So, yes, you can change diapers to the glory of God. It's a wonderful, freeing truth. But that's not Paul's first point. Yes, you can drink milk, you can fold laundry, you can care for an elderly person and see no results and just decline, all for God's glory. And that is wonderful. And I hope you all realize that, that everything you do in life has a purpose. Down to the most inane task, you can honor God and you will be rewarded eternally for it. You don't need to become a pastor. You don't need to go do some specifically religious task like you be praying or doing something to please God. Everything is pleasing to God if it's not immoral, done in dependence upon Him, and for His glory. And that's wonderful. And yet I don't think that's what Paul is primarily talking about. What he's saying is, look, primarily all of life does need to be lived for God. Yes, Romans 14, same idea. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord for God's glory. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. 
while the one who abstains, abstains in other Lord and gives thanks to God. So yes, all of it we're doing is for God's glory. And we need to realize this. I think John Piper helpfully writes, Sin is not just a list of harmful things, like killing, stealing, etc. Sin is leaving God out of account of the ordinary affairs of your life. Sin is anything you don't do for the glory of God. And so what are we living for? But then Paul ties this to a specific application. Because notice what he says next. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be advantaged. Even the words he chose, whether I eat or drink, he wasn't choosing obscure things. This is tied to the context of 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10. Whether I eat meat sacrificed to idols is the context of what he's talking about. Specifically, he's saying, I'm not going to offend anyone in these areas. So, I'm not going to do anything that would harm an unbeliever coming to know God for the first time. I'm not going to do anything that's going to harm a believer that will keep them from knowing God and glorifying Him more. No matter what, though, Paul's saying, I'm not going to live with a self-focused lifestyle. It's going to be other-focused. And so, Yes, it is true, you can and should change diapers for the glory of God. But that's not primarily here what he's talking about. And I think that's important because many Americans revolt when they realize that. Oh yeah, they love talking about living for God's glory on their own terms. God's glory is great as long as it includes personal self-discovery and self-fulfillment. They're happy to go to a church that's helping them on their spiritual journey. We're not here to help you on your spiritual journey. We're here to help you glorify God. One is about you. The other is about God. It's not about you discovering. It's about God being honored. And Paul could not be clearer that a life that glorifies God is about crucifying yourself, not living for yourself. And so we have to be very clear on that. And yet I'm Sure, some of you are sitting there going, this is like impossible. You will never please everyone. I mean, it's impossible. You go after a church and go, where do you want to go for lunch? If you have more than one other person, you're going to have more than one opinion. Well, you can't please them all. If you don't know that, be a parent. You can't please them all. And Paul knows this too. Galatians 1.10, he says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul knows this, but you've got to remember, he's talking on different levels. Here, he's talking on issues that we are free in Christ. Your friend is the man who thinks caffeinated beverages are a sin. So you don't have him over for coffee. You don't meet him at Frank and Joe's, you meet him at Burger King. Your other friend can barely get to the coffee shop and be alive, so you have a pot of coffee at the front door, and then you get him another pot when he gets in. Because he loves coffee, the other doesn't. And Paul says, look, on that, I'm going to please whoever's with me. I don't care. Galatians, though, where he says, I can't please everyone, he's talking about the gospel. And there he's very clear. Even if an angel tells me something else, 
I'm not changing. I'm not budging an inch. Because this is a first level issue in which we're not free to change. We hold to the truth of God's word. And yet people don't like this. Because we like to say, no one will tell me what to do. And yet Paul is not preaching, be yourself. Actually, he's very clear. Notice chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be like me, as I am like Christ. He's specifically saying, die to yourself and be like Christ. That we realize that others are more important than us. You know, the Christian message, though, it's always been backwards to this world. Paul already said this. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. He knows this. And even today, it's a, what? It's a stumbling block to our American ears. What? Give up my rights for others? I'll never do that. And yet, if God never did that, we would have no hope. And yet, God loved us so much that he gave his only son. He gave up his rights out of love. That is the message of the gospel. And so in conclusion, Paul has shown us that to live a life that honors God, we must do two things. First, it has to be focused on God. And if God says something's a sin, we're going to affirm it. How God reveals himself to be, that's what we're going to believe. We are going to be firm in those things. Except second, on those issues where there is freedom, we're going to show grace and charity. We're not going to selfishly pursue our own desires because our freedoms were not primarily so we could serve ourselves, but we might serve others. Thus, for any of you who've been hanging on since the beginning, wondering, but can I celebrate Christmas this year? I don't know. There's freedom. Because I don't believe anyone today is going down to the tree lot and first tossing some incense to Athena. You're not being part of a pagan worship service. And I don't believe you're leading anyone into sin. And so you're free to decorate your tree if you want. You're also free to not. Freedom in Christ. And yet all of this, I think, really ties down to one issue. And that is, we don't always know God as we should. Because think about it, what is the legalist really saying? The legalist is saying, the person who's giving all these rules saying, look, you got to do this, you can't eat this food, can't drink that, can't do that. So what they're saying is, God is a miser. And he really doesn't want to bless you in your life unless you keep all these rules. And he's got this long list that we all hate. But you know what? We want to be blessed in life. No one doesn't. So you better obey the rules. God is love. You don't need to wrangle from God's hands his blessings. But the other side also misunderstands. The other side of legalism is license. We can do anything. We're free in Christ. And yet, what they're saying implicitly, they never say this, I never say this when I act this way, is God's not really good. All these rules, they don't help us. And so i got to break everything in here and pursue life as I think is best. And yet God loves us. So He gave His Son. He gave us His Word so you can trust him. You can know that what he's given you is for your good. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it might be costly. But isn't that his love? That gave of himself. And so he says, won't you be like me? So that you might be a picture, both in your words and in your actions, 
of the gospel. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would we be that faithful picture? Oh Lord, we are often not, and we cry out for your mercy, and yet we know it's not how good we are, but it's your grace and mercy that allows us to come back to you. Oh Lord, help us in these trying times to know where to be firm, to not give in, and yet help us not to become so firm on standing firm that we don't show charity and grace on issues that are not of first importance. Oh Lord, we need your wisdom so much. Would you be with us? Guide us and lead us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.